We continue our series in 2 Timothy, Unashamed of Jesus, and today our passage is from chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Will you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Second Timothy 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is God's word. Good morning. It's a great privilege to be able to study God's Word together with you. Would you join me in prayer, please? Glorious Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would cause our hearts and minds to be conformed to your Word that we would think thoughts after the mind of Christ and that we would be conformed to his image and that through our study of your word that you would help us to live lives that bring you honor and praise even in the midst of trial and difficulty and suffering. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us through your word this morning, for the glory of your name, so that Jesus Christ alone would be hallowed in our hearts and our minds, and that we would go with great joy because of what you've done. And so we pray that in the powerful and glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, our passage is probably not hanging in your house anywhere. It's probably not emblazoned on a mug that you drink your coffee out of, and it's probably not cross-stitched in any blankets that you have at the home. It was not read at your wedding, nor any wedding that you've ever attended. And it will inspire very few hymns or worship songs. It is no one's favorite verse, and it's probably not highlighted or underlined in your Bible. Our passage this morning describes ugliness and depravity in depth. So what are we to do with a passage like this? What do we do with nine verses that not just touch over evil, but look deep at it, look it straight in the eyes? And perhaps we feel an even greater tension when we think of a verse like Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That you probably do have posted somewhere in your home. That you probably have memorized. But what in our passage this morning is commendable that we should set our minds to and think deeply about? If we were not a church that preached through whole books of the Bible, this is the passage we would skip over. But seven verses later, here in our passage, Paul writes this. Look with me. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So our challenge this morning is how are these nine verses profitable for us and not just going to depress us as we leave? How are these nine verses going to serve our souls so that we love Jesus more and that we see more clearly? And we can't throw it out. And so my hope for us this morning is that we would have God-shaped, we would have Bible-shaped thoughts regarding evil and wickedness and false teaching. That we would have hearts that are saturated in God's word in such a way that our thoughts are shaped, centered upon Christ. That we would see all of life through this book. That we would see evil and suffering and persecution and wickedness and false teachers through this lens rather than the lens of our own experience or of what the world tells us. So that's our challenge this morning. Let me read for us one quote from D.A. Carson on his book on suffering and evil. He says, One of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. And so what that quote is getting at is if we don't wrestle with evil and suffering and persecution and false teachers infiltrating the church, that when we encounter those, it will be that much more difficult for our life and faith. And so we need to wrestle with it now for our church as God's people. So our plan is to ask three questions of this text. First, why is this passage here and now in Timothy? What does this teach us? And third, how do we apply it? So first, Why is this passage here in 2 Timothy? So far, Paul has just given Timothy an extended exhortation to live a godly life, to press on in the faith. At the end of chapter 2, he says, You are to patiently endure evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. And then he says, but wait, here's a reality check. It's going to get worse. It's going to go from bad to worse. We see that 
In 3.13, it says, While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul gives Timothy here a reality check of the context in which he lives. And he gives us a reality check. We live in a fallen world. If you scanned the headlines just yesterday morning, you would have saw that 1,500 inmates escaped from a jail in Benghazi, Libya. A shooter in Florida killed six people in an apartment complex. And the list can just go on and on. We live in a fallen world full of tragedy, suffering, heartbreak, and trial. And what Paul is doing for us is he's saying the Bible is not unacquainted with human suffering. The Bible doesn't live in a fairy tale. The Bible is not oblivious to real life. Here's a small sampling from the New Testament. The birth of Jesus, an idyllic Christmas scene, ultimately ends with mass infanticide. Every child under the age of two, every male is slaughtered in Bethlehem. The cries ring out of the mothers and fathers. Jesus tells his disciples that he sends them as sheep among wolves. And if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So persecution for you and I is guaranteed here in this life if you're following Jesus. Or John the Baptist, the one who is given the special job of proclaiming the good news. The Messiah has come. He's here. And what happens to him? He's beheaded because of the whims of a royal family, Herodias and Herod. So the Bible is not written in a vacuum that is unaware and unacquainted with suffering, with your suffering or with my suffering. The Bible deals with the reality of sin and wickedness in all of its facets. And so Paul gives Timothy a reality check here. It's not going to get pretty. The gospel of Christ doesn't just lift you out of the chaos, but it transforms you to be able to endure and to face it. And so why is this passage here? He's giving Timothy a reality check, and he's giving us a reality check. He says, understand this in verse 1. Know this. This is what I want you to know. And that leads us to our second question. Why? What does he want us to know? What does this passage teach us? Verses 1 through 5 essentially list out 19 evil things. And then verses 6 through 9 zoom in on a particular type of evil person. 1 through 5 likely describe the people in that time, but also the false teachers who are at the church in Ephesus. And so these are the four things that this teaches us about evil. The time of evil. Second, the severity of evil. Third, the expressions of evil. And four, the response to evil. So number one, the time of evil. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. The word last days here seems to signal to something in the future. But throughout the New Testament, last days, last times, always signals from Christ's Redemptive work until his return. We are now living in the last days. The last days are present. 
This is confirmed in verse 5 where he says, avoid such people. We're living in the last days. There's going to be this type of people and then avoid them, which means they're here in the church in Ephesus now. Avoid these people. So he's speaking presently. Timothy, you're living in the last days. And church, you're living in the last days. The time of evil is now. Number two, the severity of evil. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. The word difficulty here understates it terribly. It sounds like a hard math problem or a flat tire. But the word difficulty here shows up only twice in the New Testament. Here and in Matthew 8.28, where it's used to describe Jesus' encounter with the demon-possessed men in the country of the Gadarenes. And it says this, Matthew 8.28, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? The word fierce, that it was so fierce that no one could pass that way, is the same word as difficulty. The last times will be severe. It has a sense of brutal, intense, perilous, turbulent, dangerous. Evil will be severe. In these last days. So the time of evil is now. The severity of evil is great. And then we get to number three. The expressions of evil. Look with me at verses two through four. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. Unappeasable. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So we get a very extensive list of ugliness, of sin, of wickedness. And it doesn't necessarily break down in any particular way, but we can maybe categorize them with three labels, idolatry, pride, and rebellion. Idolatry. We see lovers of self, lovers of money, and then at the end of verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These people have traded in love of God for love of self. And this, in some ways, is almost the key to understanding the rest of these evil, wicked behaviors that's listed. When we trade in love of God for love of self or love of money or love of pleasure, we care not for the church. We care not for others, but we care only for ourselves. Selfishness, self-centeredness consumes those who do not love God. This is idolatrous. And he's describing people who are present, perhaps even in the church. And then we see pride. Verse 2, it says, proud, arrogant, abusive. And then in verse 4, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. And so the self-centeredness and self-love gives birth 
to great pride, disdain for others, no love, no compassion, no mercy, but only what can I get out of it? How does this serve me? Who's here to meet my needs? It has an elevated view of self. So we have idolatry, we have pride, and then we get rebellion, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not loving good. This list is devastating. He's likely talking about people within the church, false teachers. Immediately prior to this, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, correcting opponents with gentleness. And then he goes into this, and he says, Avoid these people. And from among these people, they're in the church in 6 through 9, and we'll get there. This is a devastating list. Disobedient to parents. It's not just, No, mom, I don't want to clean my room. But it is these evil people are characterized by lacking even the most basic and common natural affection that you would find between parents and children. That is not present in these evil people. There is no compassion whatsoever. This is a shocking picture of the church in Ephesus, of some of those people. And so, look with me at verse 5. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And so godlessness and hypocrisy hide beneath this veneer of religiosity, of saying the right words, regular attendance, but they are godless beneath the veneer. It's like painting over mold. It's there and it's deadly. They give lip service to God, but deny the transforming power of the gospel through their wicked deeds. And so Paul is giving Timothy a full-orbed picture of evil. And this is for us, so that we would have minds and hearts that are shaped not only by our experiences and by the world, but according to God's word. So that we would see evil through the lens of the Bible. That there are many expressions of evil. And for some of us, when we read this, we think that's terrible. But for others of us, we may think, well, I've been a lover of money at times, or a lover of self, or disobedient to my parents, or ungrateful, or slanderous, or not loving good, or loving pleasure. And the word for us this morning is that there is room at the cross for repentance and forgiveness. No matter what you've done, you can come and repent before a holy God and seek for forgiveness. Paul describes people in the last days who do not turn from this, but they flaunt it. We'll see that in 6 through 9. They flaunt their wickedness, their hatred, their false teaching. They glory in it. But if you are in Christ here this morning and your conscience and your heart is pierced and you say, I've been guilty of those things, you can cry out to the Lord for repentance and forgiveness this morning. And if you do not know Christ and you find yourself enslaved to some of these passions, that you live only for yourself, 
hedonism to the max, you can find freedom from those enslaving pleasures at the cross if you would surrender to Jesus. We need not go far to find these types of false teachers, these types of people in the church today. They are present. They were present in Paul's day, and they're present today. If you turn on the television, you will find any variety of prosperity preacher who will promise healing if you send in 1995 to their ministry, or if you pray enough, a certain way, in a certain amount of time, that God will have to give you whatever you want. I remember watching a video of this African preacher in Africa among the poorest of the poor, and he rolls up in a fancy car wearing snakeskin boots, a three-piece suit, and at the end of his sermon, he calls for people to come down to the front to put their money in his hat. How many people have $100 cash for Jesus this morning? How many people have $50 for Jesus this morning? How many people have 25 And then he drives off. And he leaves these people destitute, promising them promises that are not found in Scripture, but distorting them, false teachings. There's a TV show that's about to be coming out. It's called The Preachers of L.A., and it follows four or five preachers And some of these preachers are seen in that trailer as saying it shouldn't just be P. Diddy and Kanye West that drive Lamborghinis and Ferraris, but I should be doing that as well. And they live in these incredible homes, and they have children out of wedlock, and they claim to be God's people. Not only God's people, they claim to be teachers of this book. Falsehood, evil, false teachers, wickedness abounds in our world today. We need to be aware of that. The time of evil is now. The severity of evil is great. The expressions of evil are many. And now number four, our response to evil. This is how we are to respond. He says at the end of verse five, avoid such people. Now, he's not saying, Timothy, head for the hills Because you can't get away from the evil. You need to isolate yourself. Because we see in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. You are to do the work of an evangelist. Build relationships with unbelievers. Share with them the gospel. And just prior to this, at the end of chapter 2, in verse 25, he says, Correct your opponents with gentleness. So he's not saying avoid everybody, but he is, he is saying you are to avoid the attitude and actions of some of these types of people, the wicked, unrepentant people who claim to be godly Christians, who teach and glory in their wickedness. You are to distance yourself from them. Wicked, corrupt, anti-God, anti-truth people need to be avoided. You are not to be conformed to them. You are not to buy their books. You are not to support their ministries. You are to avoid them. You are to warn your relatives and your parents and your children about false teaching that is infiltrating the church. And yet, you are to do the work of an evangelist, to seek the good of the lost, 
and to help the struggling. And so that's our task. We're to straddle those lines. Avoid wicked, unrepentant sinners who glory in their sin and yet seek to love and care for those who need Christ desperately in this world. So the time of evil is now. The severity of evil is great. The expressions of evil are many. And our response to evil is to avoid some of these. Now, look with me at verses 6 through 9. Now we zoom in on a very particular type of people because he says... For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So he's giving the reason why he ought to avoid these people. And so what we see here are spiritual predators and spiritual prey. There are people who are creeping into households and capturing weak women. These are people who are teaching false things, slithering in, do their deeds in the dark, and taking captive people who are weak, gullible. It's not all women, but very specific women in Ephesus who are burdened with sins. They fail to understand the gospel. They don't apprehend the cleansing that Christ gives. They're led astray by passions. They're engaging in all sorts of carnal pleasures. It has a sexual undertone here. And they give the appearance of learning, but never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So they dabble in theological discourse, in heresies, in controversy, but they never come to a knowledge of the truth. And so they engage in a morbid love of curiosity and novelty. And so we have here predators who are teaching falsehoods, but we also have people who are being captured by that who are welcoming it nearly, in a sense. Because if you look with me at chapter 4, verse 3, there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Their ears itch. They go and find the people who will tell them what they want to hear. And so we have predators And we have pray. And now we get to verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. These two men are not mentioned in the Old Testament, but they're mentioned in other Christian and pagan and Jewish literature. And they are typically understood to be the sorcerers and the magicians who opposed Moses in the Exodus account. You can read about it in Exodus 7 through 9. And when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, throws down his staff to show that he's coming as a messenger sent by God with his power. His staff turns into a snake and these magicians do what? They throw down their staffs which turn into snakes as well, according to their secret arts, their magic arts, demonic arts, perhaps. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so what does Moses do? He turns the Nile into blood. And it says, these magicians did the same. They turned water into blood, according to their magic arts. And so they're opposing not only God's power and God's truth, but God's servant. And what happens next? 
Moses brings frogs out onto the land, and these magicians bring frogs out onto the land. It's incredible that the power that they had. Secret arts. And they bring frogs. But what happens next? Moses brings gnats. And what do we, what is recorded? It says the magicians tried to bring gnats, but they could not. And they said, this is the power of God. They begin to recognize it, but they do not soften. They continue to oppose Moses. That's the third plague. When it gets to the sixth, Moses throws dust in the air and boils cover all of the Egyptians across their face. What does it say? It says that the magicians could not stand before Moses because they were covered in boils. So in the same way that these, two, these magicians opposed Moses, opposed God and his truth, their folly in verse 9 is plain to all. How? In bloody, blistering, pussing boils across their face shows their folly. They have tried to stand against God's servant. They have tried to stand against God's truth. And their folly is plain, as plain as bloody boils across the face. You can read about that in Exodus 9, 10, and 11. The magicians could not stand. And so what he's saying, what Paul is saying, is in the same way that these two men oppose God... And God's truth, that's what these false teachers do. But their folly will be plain to all. There are false teachers in Moses' day, and there's false teachers now. And they will continue. But don't worry. Don't get hung up. Don't get discouraged. Their folly will be plain to all. God will reveal it. They will pick gnats out of their ears and nose. In the same way that these two men opposed God, false teachers who oppose God will be figured out. If not in this life, certainly in the next. They will stand before judgment and they will be judged harshly. For they have led astray God's people. So why is this passage here? That was the question we began with. It is to give us a reality check. It is to shape our hearts and minds so that we're conformed to Scripture, that we see the world through this lens and not through our own, not through what the world gives us, but that we understand evil and wicked and suffering and false teachers according to God's Word. And so what do we learn? What does it teach us? It's that the time of evil is now. We live in the time of evil. We live in a time where people will intentionally try to lead you astray. Not just for your money, but just so that you fail. You do not endure in following Christ. There are people who are teaching falsehoods and glory in them. Beware. The time of evil is now. The severity severity of evil is great. It is fierce. We are to be prepared. The expressions of evil are many, idolatrous, prideful, rebellious. And our response to evil is to avoid those who do not repent and turn to Christ. Those who glory in their wickedness, we are to distance ourselves. Now, let me ask the third question. How do we apply this to our lives? How do you and I apply this? How do we go home not depressed that evil is abounding 
And how do we apply this? I see at least three ways. Don't be surprised about false teachers. That's Paul's aim in this. Don't be surprised. False teachers will come and go, and they will abound. Don't get anxious or depressed or despondent. When you turn on the television and you see someone preaching a false gospel, it is horrible, but it will not endure to the end. God sits on the throne. Jesus, his servant, was vindicated, sits at the right hand of the throne of God, rules and reigns, and nothing takes place apart from his control. God knows they will be judged. Do not fret. Do not be surprised that there's false teaching. God's in control. And he'll let it go for a time and he will judge. And his judgment is perfect. Second, don't be, do not conform or be deceived by false teachers. Look with me in 3.10. At the end of our passage, in the next verse, it says, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So he says, you're not like that. And then again in 14, he says, but as for you, when things are going from bad to worse and deceived and being deceived, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And so what he's saying is don't conform to these false teachers and don't be deceived by them. That's not how you learned Christ. And for those of us who are following Jesus here in this room or are hearing this message, if you've given your life to Christ, if you've surrendered yourself and trusted in him as your only hope in this life and in the next, that's not who you are. You're not defined by your sin struggles, but you're defined by the righteousness of Christ. Do not conform to these wicked, false teachers, and don't be deceived by them. And we are to examine ourselves. Are we lovers of self? Are we lovers of money? Are we lovers of pleasure? Are we brutal or slanderous? Or do we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? And we count everything else as loss for the surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we believe that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life itself? I pray that it is for us. So do not be deceived. They're prowling about. They're opposing truth. And we are to beware of false teachers in the church today, not only on the television, but in our neighborhoods. And we've exported it to Africa and to Latin America. And we need to beware of false teachers who say they preach from the Bible and say they're gospel-centered and Bible-believing, and they never open this book when they preach from God's Word. They quote half-truths and blatant falsehoods. For their own gain. We are to beware of leaders who lord it over their congregations with intimidation and threats and power plays. And we are to beware of pastors who serve themselves at the expense of the flock, who do not take after Christ. We are to beware of leaders like that. Don't be surprised about false teachers. Don't conform or be deceived by them. And patiently persevere in the Lord's work. Look with me 
in chapter 2, verse 24, and throughout 2 Timothy, there's been this theme of patience that's been kind of beneath the surface. 2.24 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And then we see in 3.10, You, however, have followed my teaching, conduct, aim, faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And then if we look in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And the, so, so the sense here is that, Timothy, you're not to get distraught, you're not to get hung up, you're not to be derailed, but you're to patiently persevere in the Lord's work. Patiently persevere. Press on. False teachers will be shown to be false, but those who labor in God's Word are to press on in it. The results may not be instant. Your prayers, you may not see results in a moment or in five years, but patiently persevere. Your teaching, your cries for your children who are not following the Lord, your Sunday school, your small group, your labors in ministry elsewhere, patiently persevere. While some will go from bad to worse, deceived and being deceived, God's people persevere because we have a clear view of eternity. Jesus Christ sits on the throne, ruling, reigning, in control. Nothing, nothing, is beyond his knowledge and beyond his power. And so as we end, let me look at 2 Timothy 1.10. It says, Don't be ashamed, because God has saved us, this is verse 9, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So God has done that. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. His life, death, and resurrection vindicated him, seated him at the right hand of the throne of God, and given him all power, given him the name above every name, so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. That's where all of history is headed. So you and I, though this world is full of trials and suffering and heartbreak from false teachers or just health ailments, we can endure and persevere because Jesus Christ reigns and rules and is in control. And our greatest worry, our greatest disease, our greatest problem, sin, has been taken at the cross. The wrath of God was removed once and for all there. And so, don't be surprised at false teachers. Do not conform or be deceived by them, but persevere patiently in the Lord's work. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your word would shape our hearts and minds. We pray that Jesus Christ would be lifted high. 
that your name would be hallowed. And as we think about evil in this world, we would remember that though it is hard and it is wicked, that you are in control and we have been given all that we need that pertains to God, that, can, that pertains to life and godliness. And so, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would cause these words to lodge deep into our hearts and minds so that when the day of suffering or evil or trial comes, we would stand firm. We would know and we would be reassured that that's not how we learned Christ and we can patiently persevere for the sake of Jesus. Pray that you would do that for us, Lord, your people. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.